This is Katie Taylor, and you are listening to Episode 2 of the Child Life On Call podcast. Hi, and welcome to the Child Life On Call podcast. When your child is sick, the whole world seems to stop in its tracks. Plans and priorities change, and your number one job becomes figuring out how to get your child well again. For some of us, rest, medications, and relaxation can do the trick. But for others, it takes more. It takes countless doctor appointments, invasive medical testing, therapy, surgeries. The list goes on, and then you still may not have all of the answers or results you were hoping for. This podcast features parents of children that have an illness or medical condition and gives them a place to share their own journeys and experiences. We will talk about the ups and the downs, the highs and the lows, but one thing seems to remain the same. Children are resilient and teach us more about ourselves and the world than we could ever imagine. Thank you so much for lending a listening ear and opening up your heart to these families and this podcast. I'm your host, Katie Taylor. So funny because I asked her. So on that last day, I said to her, "She said, can I?" Ask? I said, "I've had this question all these years that I've always been afraid to ask you." She says, "You can ask me anything." I said, "What was it that made you come into the emergency room all those years ago?" Because you know, pediatricians don't do that. Mm-hmm. You know, house doctors are there. I said, "Why did?" I said, "I don't understand." I said, "Everybody was telling me I was I was crazy." I said, "What was it?" And she said. Honestly, she says there are the words that a mother will say, something is wrong with my child. Guys, this episode, I want to warn you, I say, oh, wow, a lot. I say, oh, my gosh, a lot. Within five minutes, you will feel like you've known Michelle for your entire life. You will feel her pain as she discusses the unknowns of her daughter's acute battle with meningoencephalitis. You'll want to cheer her on as she describes being an advocate for her daughter and fighting for what she believed in based on her motherly instinct. Michelle brings a unique perspective on relationships with healthcare providers given the fact that she is a nurse and has been for over 18 years. You'll hear her talk about the benefits of building a trusting relationship with your child's pediatrician, and she gives great advice about how to find that specific provider and also talks about the importance of following your gut instinct. Michelle's story is one that took place 15 years ago, and this is the first time that she has spoken about it publicly. You will fall in love with her, and besides being the easiest person to talk to on earth, she is kind and humble and incredibly brilliant. She was an engineer for 10 years before she answered the calling to become a nurse. It only makes complete sense that her offspring is going into the Air Force Academy. Totally impressive. Michelle, thank you so much for being here today, and we are honored that you want to share Bryn's story with our listeners. Michelle, why don't you start off by telling us why you have decided to share this story and a little bit about you and your family and where you guys come from? So um, this story is about 15 years old, um, and I think that now is the time that with almost perfect timing to want to share it Um, only because I think maybe somewhere in my words, um, somebody might find something that can help them on their journey. Um, I know along the way I had people that would say just things 
in, in passing that somehow really stuck and helped me get through it. So that's probably why um, now I've, you know, decided to talk about what we've been through as a family. Um, I'm the mom of three girls and my oldest one, and maybe coincidentally it's because she's getting ready now to embark on her own life. She's 18. And, um, you know, there was a time we didn't think that, you know, she would make it to her next birthday. So hitting 18 was a real milestone for us. Um, a real sort of like I can exhale moment. Right. And not only hitting 18, but like hitting it and rocking it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. She's definitely, you know, you know, when people say, oh, you know, the teenage years are the worst, I have to, I have to sort of be quiet because for me, they were almost the best. We, you know, I watched my daughter bloom into this really strong, confident, focused, um, you know, she definitely knows what she wants to do in life. So I'm going to unleash her on the world. (laughs) Do y'all know what it takes to be granted admission as a cadet into the Air Force Academy? Well, let me tell you, it is no easy feat. In addition to requiring a way above average GPA and test scores, you have to be a well-rounded individual with drive and persistence. And above all of that, you must be appointed by your state senator. The daughter you're listening to Michelle talk about today has done all of that. Oh, yeah. And she's been recruited to be on the Air Force Academy's women's volleyball team. So now that you know this story has a happy ending, I'd like you to pay attention to Michelle as she takes us back to when Bryn was a toddler and the first signs and symptoms that something wasn't right. Yeah, it's funny that, you know, when you, in life, it's this is a story that I feel as though somebody painted it in my mind. It's not something that is faded. The details are still almost almost as if they happened yesterday when Bryn was... Um, you know, a toddler just shy of two, she had been having, um, so we had had kind of a rough year with her. She'd had these sort of on and off fevers. They would last for 10 to 12 hours and then they would go away 10 to 12 hours. And we never, I I could never really pinpoint. I just, you know, the pediatrician's like, oh, well, babies get sick. So she got really sick, um, in the summer, um, that she had just turned to and they diagnosed her with pyelonephritis, which is a kidney infection. And my pediatrician at the time decided to do some workup and they discovered she had um, reflux in her ureteral kidney. So I guess that was bad news, but it was good news. It was manageable. It was something that happened. Kids outgrew it. They put her, you know, they said, well, she'll probably need antibiotics for the next couple of years every day. Life was good. She healed. We moved on. Um, but about a month after she was um, back to herself and taking you know, these antibiotics every day, we were on vacation with our family. It was a big family vacation um, at the ocean, and she just was pretty irritable. And she had never really been an irritable baby, so um, then she got feverish. So I thought my first instinct was that she'd had you know another kidney infection and the antibiotics weren't working. So I took her to an urgent care where we were, and they said, no, it wasn't a kidney infection, that it was probably just a virus, and sent us home. So she kept getting progressively more lethargic and irritable to the point where I just I just knew something wasn't right. So I packed up early, and we came home, 
on a Sunday and I thought, well, I'll just take her to see my pediatrician in the morning because there wasn't really anything glaringly wrong with her. So on that Sunday, um, I noticed that she just was a little hard, harder to wake up and wasn't eating. So I took her to the emergency room. Well, actually first I called my sister because everybody in life should have a sister like mine. Um, so I called my sister and I, you know, and at the time, ironically, I was an emergency room nurse, which may have explained why initially I was, you know, a little more reluctant to maybe go into the emergency room because, you know, we see a lot. And But I should have known then that if my instincts were telling me to go into the emergency room, then that was probably a big red flag that perhaps I was trying to talk myself out of. So we went into the emergency room on a Sunday afternoon. And she really wasn't feverish. She just wasn't acting right. And I tried to explain my story and they ran another urine test. And I got worried because, you know, she was two and she didn't move when they cast her for the urine, when I put the tube in to get her urine. For any of you who have had the unfortunate circumstance of having to be present while a urinary catheter is inserted into a toddler, you know it is one of the most difficult procedures for the parent and the child. The patient must be in an uncomfortable position, and between the harshness of the cold soap and the feeling of a catheter, the procedure is an unpleasant one. As a child life specialist who used to work in radiology and now in the emergency room, I can tell you I have been present for hundreds of these procedures. Being a support to parents and providing an alternative focus for these kiddos during this procedure is a top priority for me. So when Michelle says that her daughter didn't flinch when they placed the catheter, you know something isn't right. And so, and ironically, you know, coincidentally, it wasn't the emergency room that I worked in. I went to the one that my pediatrician was associated with, um, just because it was closer to where I was. So they did her vital signs when we were in triage, and they were really abnormal. Like her heart rate was in the 200s, her blood pressure was like hypertensive, like 200 over 120. And the nurse had said to me, oh, well, it's just because she's a child which didn't sit well with me as an ER nurse because she wasn't flailing. She was just kind of like a limp dish rag. So they kind of it off. And then when the urine came back clear, I sort of had to push and they did some blood work and they're like, well, her blood work is fine. Her urine is fine. And I kept coming back to, but her vital signs are not fine. And they said, oh, well, you know, with kids, they can get anxious and nervous and sometimes it's not a good reading, but she was just kind of laying there. So, um, I start to be quite honest with you. We, we sort of got into a heated discussion with the, the, um, they brought the in-house pediatrician down to look at my daughter. And it was funny because outside the room, I had heard them saying, oh, she's just a crazy ER nurse mother. I feel like this is one of those good teachable moments to remember that if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. Right. So they didn't know me from Adam. So I called my pediatrician on call. Luckily she was, you know, she was on call and she lived very close and, you know, she, it was, we had been in there probably the better part of six or seven hours. So it was closing in towards midnight now. And my pediatrician said to me, I'll be right there, which if you're in a career in healthcare, usually a private pediatrician does not come into the emergency room. So, Years later, I'll find out why, but, you know, at that moment, I was just so thankful that she was coming in. So she came in at almost, you know, hair 
was a little disheveled and she took one look at my kid and she kind of flipped out with me. She scooped her up, ran her to the CAT scan, came back um, and did a spinal tap and her spinal fluid was milky. So we knew she had an infection in her spinal cord um, that had obviously progressed far enough um, to her brain that now she was starting to go into respiratory failure and her breathing patterns had, were changing. I feel like almost everything was against me that night except my pediatrician. So she tried to call the helicopter to fly her to the ICU, but the weather was bad. So they sent their ground transport. And when the ground transport arrived, one of the paramedics passed out. What? So she could, yeah, passed out in the ER from something. So they're like, well, we need, you know, we need, people to transport and my doctor saw what I saw and that was that my daughter was really really she was just she was going to go into complete respiratory failure so she convinced them to let me be that third ride along since I was an emergency room nurse and she got us to the hospital and literally as we pulled in well Bryn started throwing up in the back of the ambulance which is a sign of increased intracranial pressure Mm -hmm. and Literally, as they got us into the ambulance, the ICU doctors met us in the ambulance bay, and they were intubating her before even getting to the ICU. Intubation is a procedure by which a tube is inserted through the mouth down into the trachea, the large airway from the mouth to the lungs. This typically happens before surgery when a patient is undergoing deep sedation, or like in Bryn's case, during an emergency situation when the providers are concerned that the patient is unable to breathe on their own. So did you watch all of that happen? I did. Yeah, I did. I could, well, when she was through it, well, it's funny that what you know and what you don't know. I mean, when she threw up, that's when I thought, I, I got, I started to get nervous. And then when I heard, you could hear, I could hear them bagging her in the back of the ambulance. They took her to the ICU and she didn't even need, at this point, she was so, um, her mental status had degraded so severely that she didn't even need sedation on the vent. So, uh, if you know anything about neuroscoring, they do a Glasgow, there's a scale, 1 to 15. Three, you get just for being human. You don't even have to be alive. And 15 is normal. And Bryn was a three. She didn't respond to pain. She wasn't breathing on her own. Um, so she was like a three slash four. The next few days, trying to figure out what was causing, the, you know, they couldn't isolate anything. They sent her spinal fluid. Um, the lab again they did another spinal tap so that was two and then a few days later they did a third to send off to the cdc because they could never isolate the virus or that was you know attacking her brain so she stayed um so it was hard it was hard in the icu because nobody could tell me anything nobody could tell me um you know if she could you know she would was going to live or die um and at that time i mean the internet wasn't nearly as robust with, I know we all laugh and about going to the internet, but, you know, sometimes, you know, you can really find great resources. Well, that really wasn't a resource for us back, you know, almost two decades ago. Um, so they, the prognosis, basically, they, they told me that maybe 50-50 she would live. And if she did, that usually it had really bad outcome, meaning that you have suffered some sort of permanent disability from it, whether that be, you know, cognitive or physical. They just, nobody could tell me anything. 
other than we're going to try to keep her alive and hope she wakes up really was where we were at. And so, um, so were you by yourself at this point or had, was your husband able to come? Was your sister able to come and be with you as you're getting all this news and trying to filter through it all? Yeah, luckily, I think I had such an amazing support system. So I had my family. Um, my sister was there with me. My sisters took turns. Um, my nurse friends coordinated the schedule so that they didn't overwhelm me. But somebody would come like every four or five hours and, you know, just bring me a little something. I remember, you know, I still laugh with one of one of my best friends. Um, she she asked me what I wanted. And for some crazy reason, I asked for Noxzema. I don't really use Noxzema, right? I think I used it as a teenager. Wow. <laughs> right? Isn't that funny? And we still joke about that. So to say that she said it took her like four places until she finally found Noxzema. So I felt, yeah. <laughs> but you know what? It's so funny because I used it the entire time I was there. And now it's like a trigger for me if I smell I'm sure. It, that is hysterical. Isn't that funny? The most random things that you buy. But, you know, the nice thing was um, one of the things that comforted me the most was that, you know, the staff encouraged me to leave, but I couldn't, even though there was a Ronald McDonald house. There was just, I just couldn't leave because I don't think we had any answers. And I was afraid I was going to miss something. So I was having trouble closing my eyes because I just felt I just needed somebody to watch her. And so I was very fortunate. And the fact that my dad was retired, he would come up at 11 o'clock at night and he would sit in the rocking chair and he would stay up all night so that I could sleep. Oh my, wow. And yeah. yeah. And it's funny because he and, he and Bryn always had a, I just lost him about a year and a half ago, but the two of them had a really special bond. And, um, you know, he would sing her Irish lullabies and, he would talk to her. I, I'm convinced that, you know, Brenda is, is headed off to a career. She's trying to decide she has two appointments. You can go to the Air Force Academy or the Coast Guard Academy. And I think it was my dad all those years ago talking to her because he was in the military. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, so that support system was, I think, a lifeline. And some of the advice that I got, I was fortunate in the fact that the one of the ICU nurses was my neighbor and friend. And she gave me some, you know, really good advice. And at the time, I thought it was kind of crazy. She said, you need to take pictures because one day you're going to want to remember this good or, you know, you're going to want to have this. And I'm like, why would I want to take pictures of this, you know? And I just thought that was terrible. And But I did. I did. And it was probably, I never looked at him for 10 years. 10 years, I couldn't look at him. And um, then I looked at them, but put them away because they made me cry. Um, and then it was so funny because when when Bryn turned 18, I pulled them out and I finally showed them to her. She so had never seen of, them before or did she know the story at all? Well, she did know the story because she had years. So um, she had years of recovery that she had to go through. So after about eight days, um, they wanted to put, it's funny, they wanted to, trach her so to put a breathing tube in because she wasn't waking up and I fought them and I said no and it was it was kind of funny because my mom I my mom is very Catholic and my aunts were very Catholic and they were visiting and they asked if they could bring their priest to visit and I said absolutely you know 
it, it was to me things like that. It's it's supportive because my parents were going through it too, and and that's something I think that when you have a a kid who is critically ill, sometimes you get so obsessed with your journey and your child's journey that you forget that there are other people suffering around you. And so when my mom asked that question, I could see that she needed that. So um, it was funny because they had just, you know, we had just had this discussion with the doctor about, I didn't want her to have a tracheostomy. And so the priest waited outside and then he came in and he prayed with my mom. And while they were praying over her, it was the first time that Bryn actually moved. So, um, and then it was a slow recovery after that. Um, and it was hard. So ha- had she still not been on any of those sedatives or anything nothing. like that during that time? Nothing. Wow. Nothing. She was, she was on a ventilator in a coma without response for nine days. So, um, were you in the room when they were doing that prayer? Were you right next to Bryn when it happened or was did you like scream for the nurse or the doctor to come in? What happened? Well, it was funny because they were getting ready to pack her up. She was going for an MRI. And um, so there were people in the room and they, they did not have, you know how usually you have kids tied or people on ventilators, their arms are secured so they can't pull their tube out. Mm-hmm. Well, Bryn's weren't because she wasn't moving. <laughs> right. So, um, no restraints or anything. Right, so they were holding her hands, and at first I thought maybe it was just somebody had bumped the bed, you know, because there was a lot of action in the room, got quiet and still, and the priest was still praying, and Bryn went to try to reach, like reflexively reach for that tube, even though she didn't open her eyes, Um, and then they took her off to MRI, and she came back, and she didn't move for, she was, you know, quiet again, but I think it was the first I know it was the first time she started to wake up. So it's funny because my mom, that's what my mom remembers. Everybody remembers something. Mm-hmm. Like I remember, you know, the, the crazy things like Magzima. My mom remembers that very clearly. That's the first time that the priest came. And, you know, I wasn't very religious at the time. But, um, you know. Yeah, I would have hugged that priest. Yeah. I would have. <laughs> he did. He came every day. <laughs> so, um yeah, and I remember it was hard because I had to, you know, I had to walk the line with being an advocate because, you know, they did want to trach her, and then maybe medically that was the right thing to do because that's what the textbook said. But it, it was something in my gut telling me, no, um, don't do that. And um, so that was really hard, finding my strength as a putting my nurse hat back on. I know how terrible those were. So I negotiated. I was a negotiator. While she was there, um, because I guess I thought my attitude was, well, if she's not going to wake up, what's the rush? I think is, and I know that's a kind of a really somber thought, but I think I held out hope that she was going to wake up, and I didn't want her to have this big nasty scar. And they couldn't tell me that she wasn't going to wake up, so um, I guess you know once I had sort of told them why I was thinking what I was thinking um they became a little bit you know they they sort of backed off a little because they were pretty aggressive in in wanting to um to put one in yeah I was about to ask how receptive they were to you 
given that you were a nurse, do you think that they listened to you a little bit more than maybe they would have someone else? Um, I think it went both ways. I think they listened to me more because I could speak their language. But I also think they were very resistant because they thought that um, maybe I perhaps thought I knew too much. <laughs> Quote, unquote, they know too much. Right. <laughs> yeah. I feel like we hear that a lot in the medical field. You know too much. I know too much. I feel like I say it a lot. We do. And I think they're right. I, I mean, in, in all honesty, I think that's a very fair assessment. She woke up. It was a rough wake up. but um, Was it slow for her? Or um, did they want to sedate her again? Or did they immediately get the tube out? No, they didn't sedate her at all. So what they, because she would just sort of have these periods for about the next day and a half where she would just get a little restless. So they started doing weaning trials on her where they would see if she could breathe above the vent. And um, when she got to the point where she could breathe above the vent, then they pulled it out. But then she struggled, um, and they had to use a helium oxygen mix for 24 hours. I'd like to share with you all what Bryn's official diagnosis was. It's called meningoencephalitis. According to the Mayo Clinic, meningoencephalitis is rare with under 200,000 occurrences each year. It is typically caused by a virus, bacterium, parasite, or other microorganism. Symptoms vary depending on the cause, but can include fever, confusion, vomiting, seizures, and if left untreated, death. Treatment includes antibiotics, antivirals, or supportive care, depending on the origin of the disease. Then it, was, then it got really hard because she didn't wake up like she was my child anymore. She was very confused, like a head injury. What we didn't realize, it was funny because the entire time they had an infectious disease doctor treating her. And, um, you know, he was sort of an institution there. Everybody knew him. He'd been there forever. He came into her room after she woke up. And I was actually very stressed because she was very irritable and inconsolable. And we didn't know what basically had was going to happen as far as, you know, what did the virus do to her brain? What did it do to her body? And so the infectious disease doctor came in and he sat and he looked at me. He was a very academic kind of guy and was talking. And then he stood up and he dropped metal floor and Bryn didn't even flinch. And I was like, doing like I, I couldn't figure out what he was doing well what he was doing and what he, nobody else realized was Bryn had lost her hearing so um he said that he was watching her and because she didn't turn to hear the noise and hear him so he was the one that discovered she had hearing loss the infectious disease doctor isn't that ironic so after they took the tube out we I Bryn didn't sleep for 48 hours. And so I remember fighting with the resident because not only was she wouldn't sleep, but anytime they took her out of my arms, she, she became um, almost like she would start thrashing and a temper tantrum. But as soon as I would hold her, she would calm back down. So I remember like on our like 18, my sister and I going into the bathroom and I literally couldn't put her down. And my sister helping me to the bathroom. My sister was feeding me. We got in the shower together on day two. And then finally, you know, and I was trying to sleep with her in my arms with somebody watching. And I finally, I said to the resident who was being, you know, the resident was a little insensitive. He's like, just put her down and she'll fall asleep. I remember, I remember thinking, 
if I'm laying in the bed with her and she's not falling asleep, and no, and I think because nobody understood what was going on, it wasn't like there was a normal, there was no template for this. There was no, we know what's going to happen. This is normal. It kind of had everybody baffled. And I asked to give her something to sleep. I'm like, my goodness, this kid's been up for 48 hours. I was had been up for 48 hours, and I was ready to fall apart. And um, I remember... I remember the resident saying something to the effect, well, she's, you know, basically slept for eight days. Of course, she's going to be awake or something like that. And I remember thinking, wow, about, I don't know, about four months later, I went back to speak with the director about the fact that somebody like that didn't belong in pediatrics. And so they finally gave her something to help her sleep. They called neurology in and neurology is like, yeah, this kid needs to sleep. (laughs) Oh, yeah, so she lost the ability to hear. She lost the ability to walk. Um, She couldn't swallow and um, was very confused, would, like, get caught in a loop, like, on a word. So, like, she would would say, I remember she liked this video spot. Remember the dog spot? Mm -hmm. And she would watch it, and she would just go, spot, spot. Like, and that was the only word she could say. and so it was kind of uncharted territory because I think the worst part of all of it was nobody could tell me, yeah, you know, in three months, like a broken leg, you kind of know sort of the progression of how things are going to heal or you know what the complications are going to be. And with this, I just got blank stares. It was just, well, go go figure it out. Go, you know, take your baby home and I mean, I mean, what thing in the hospital? So they sent you know me home with my baby, who oh, um, who couldn't walk and who couldn't speak, and you know her swallow stuff, couldn't hear you, couldn't yeah. hear me. Right? Nobody could tell me anything. But the one bright shining star in all of this was the pediatrician who came into the emergency room, who ironically was a Navy doctor, and I think this was Bryn's destiny to go into the military. Um, you know, she was my she was my sort of my beacon in all of it because she she just knew what like she was very proactive so I often think it's funny I often think there are people who go into medicine because oh I want to be a doctor and then there are people who go into medicine because they want to take care of people and she was definitely one of those who wanted to take care of people so when I got home you know she made it a point to call me kind of every night and say okay how'd your day go and it was I think that's really what got me through it all because, I mean, what do you do? You you took this perfectly normal child into the hospital and now you've brought home this, you know, this child who's been broken and you have to put her back together again. So um, she definitely was sort of my clarity in all of it. And anything I bounced off of Bryn, she never thought I was crazy. I bounced off of her about Bryn. So, like, for instance, about six months later, Bryn got developed really horrible body odor. And, you know, when your three-year-old smells like a sewer, you're thinking, what's wrong? And so she guided me through the medical process and never once made me feel that I was overreacting. She said, you know, this is a unique situation. You have to trust. I trust. She trusted me. And I think that's what... I think that's what kept me from falling apart. That's incredible. Because somebody trusted me. 
and that I, you know, because I, you know, who, she's like, who knows her better than you, Michelle? That's what she would say to me. I bet, I bet seeing her as a pediatrician and I mean, Michelle, you're already such a caring nurse, but I bet she even more wanted you to continue doing what you do. Yeah, she did. She did. You know what the, what the, the most beautiful part of the story is. So every year Bryn would go in and, you know, have her physical and, you know, she, her and Bryn had this fierce bond and um, she would say, you know, Bryn, you're the reason why I became a doctor. Oh. And she, you know, through the years she would watch Bryn grow. So Bryn got her hearing back and we talked, you know, we, we rehabbed Bryn to the point where, you know, she became a top level athlete. And yeah, I will talk to us a little bit about, I guess, how long did it take for you once she came home and you were kind of, you know, nursing her back to health and getting her involved in therapies? How long until you could finally, I guess, exhale? <laughs> probably, I would say, I would probably say five years. Wow. It was five years because I remember, I think it was, I think I remember when Bryn finally turned 10, I was able to sleep through the night because I would get up every night and go down and check on her. And it's funny because I had two babies after Bryn. So they, I weren't, I wasn't worried about them. <laughs> I was worried about <laughs> So, um, but yeah, it was five years of really intense rehab and that, you know, again, where my support system came in. Because, um, you know, I had friends, you know, who just, you know, they're like, put her in swimming. So I had a swim coach, you know, a friend who would take her to swimming while my other, while I was home with my other two kids. Because people want to help. They're like, how can we help you? And I'm like, if you could just take Brenda to swim class, that would be great. And so she signed up her and her son and Bryn and off to swim class they went. And she would take, you know, Bryn who was dragging her leg behind her because she dragged her leg behind her for a long time. Wow. And, you know, my other neighbor's like, well, I'm putting my kids in ballet. Can I take, can I take Bryn with me? And so we put her in ballet. And so we, you know, we put her in all of these different things, even though, you know, she'd fall down, Mm -hmm. (laughs) they would just pick her back up again. And so I I thank those people because I don't know if I would have had enough energy and strength to, to, you know, because I was, you know, I had, had to go back to work so I was working as well and so those were those were things that really helped me along the way was when people didn't ask me what they could do for me they told me what they were going to do for me right they just did it they just did it Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. they just did it and so yeah so probably I would say it was five years I couldn't even talk about it without crying literally without without sobbing for five years and then five years I could get through it um and it's probably you know I mean it's been you know, 16 years now. And I can, I can speak about it without it's, and it's so Brynn and I, it's so funny when she was writing her college essays, you know, I told her about her journey because then she knew because she would have way more doctor's appointments than any other kid on a, you know, Mm -hmm. healthy kid, you know, kids that are sick tend to know how, you know, know what ultrasounds are and MRIs. And so when it came time for college essays, Bryn wrote this essay that actually made me cry, but she said that, um, you know, she's a, she's a really good athlete. And I used, when I used to watch her, you know, sometimes she would get frustrated if, um, her team didn't win or, you know, the season didn't go the way she wanted. And my, what I would always say to her through the years was, you know, it's okay, Bryn, because you can walk. (laughs) I said, I said, for me, the fact that you can walk on the court 
I said, that's my victory. And I just happened to say that through all those years. Right. And, and so she wrote an essay about the fact that now that, now, you know, she can walk. Now she wants to learn how to fly. So, um, and gives me chills. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And so, you know, it's, it's funny because I didn't, I guess I just never thought we wouldn't stop moving forward. I never stopped moving for, I, I guess I just never, I thought, well, you're going to walk again and you're going <laughs> to, so, um, but it, you know, the, the bittersweet part of the story is that Bryn had to get a medical clearance to go into the military, right? Or she's going into one of the, uh, academies. She made an appointment, um, to get the forms filled out and had to make a last minute appointment at the pediatrician. So she went in. And I had to go in with her, and her doctor was there. Her name was Dr. Diane Dubinsky, that saved her all those years ago. And this is the doctor. This is the doctor. The, the one. She is the one. Okay. Um, you know, we sat in there, and I said, this was probably going to be the last time you take care of Bryn, right? And my heart was like, I was choking back the tears. And she says, well, she says, that's probably, she goes, that's kind of poetic justice, she says, because today's my last day of being a doctor. Oh, my. She retired on the day that Bryn saw her pediatrician. You know, that was the last time Bryn was going to the pediatrician. She turned 18. You know, she's going to be off either, you know, doing something. And so her last day was Bryn's last day. So um, we cried. We cried probably for an hour. And she says of all of her triumphs and, you know, everything she's been through over the years, she says, you know, Bryn was, Bryn is, is definitely her miracle baby. And that, you know, she, she said she learned more about being a, a, a doctor taking care of Bryn than she did, you know, with, with everybody else. So it was really important for me through my journey that I have somebody like that. And, you know. And what made her such a good doctor was trusting in you, really. I think so. I think and listening to you. And it's so funny because I asked her, so on that last day, I said to her, she said, can I, I said, I've had this question all these years that I've always been afraid to ask you. She says, you can ask me anything. I said, what, I, I said, what was it that made you come into the emergency room all those years ago? Because, you know, pediatricians don't do that. You know, house doctors are there. I said, why did, but I said, I don't understand. I said, everybody was telling me I was, I was crazy. I said, what was it? And she said, honestly, she said, when you told me, she said, the words, she says, there are the words that a mother will say, something is wrong with my child. She says, you got really quiet and you said, something is wrong. And she says, and when I hear those words, and she goes, there's just something, it's just something you know that, she says, because I've only gone into the ER maybe a handful of times in my career. She goes, I could probably count on my hands the number of times. And she goes, and every single time, she says, the mother has said, something is wrong with my baby. So, um, and I remember saying those words. I couldn't, I couldn't articulate what was wrong with her. I, there's something wrong. And, um, and it's so funny. She says, because parents just don't say that. Usually they'll say, oh, she's got a bellyache or this or that. They can, you know, but when it's when they can't articulate it, she said that it really causes me concern. Well, Michelle, um, if you could give any advice to someone who's going through a similar situation that you were in 16 years ago, what, what would you tell them? 
I would tell them a couple of things. I would tell them it's okay to wear your crazy hat. That that's like your badge of honor. I would rather be crazy than wrong. So, um, and that you know that hurts. I mean, sometimes that really hurts when they they tell you. I would I would also tell people that you know your medical care team. It's kind of like that. You, you should pick them with, a, with more care than you pick the clothes in your closet. I mean, if you think about we try on jeans and we, you know, we put a lot of time and effort into picking out cars and houses and clothes, but sometimes with, with medical professionals, we don't demand that. We just show up and, you know, take it. And I, I think a lot, what I have found along my way is if you don't click with somebody and you, you it's not a, it's not something, somebody you look forward to going and seeing, you need, you have the permission to move along. Because Bryn's specialists were scattered. I was, we're very lucky to live in an area where we have, you know, several really good hospitals. So she had doctors at all of them because I needed to find the right ones for her. And, um, you know, th- that's something that I think some people get afraid of. And then let people help. Let people, you know, don't, don't think that. I know that's hard, but just tell people just, just to help, even if it's just your grasp or... You know, people want to feel helpful and make your life easier. And sometimes it's, you know, hard to ask for that help. So um, I know that I, I you know, I, I think all those years ago, if I would have just said, somebody, could you come, you know, stay up all night so I can sleep? <laughs> you know, so that, that, that's my advice. Wear your crazy hat. Find the right team and give yourself permission. <laughs> so, for help. You know, I'm I'm thinking back to just a few years ago when Bryn had a little bit of a situation and yep. you know, working as a child life specialist with you but also being your friend and um you know, now knowing this this story how difficult any cold must have been, how difficult any fever must have been. You must have just just felt all of it all of the time well you know it's funny and I don't know if you know the sort of the the outcome of all of that but um that too was a time when a doctor told me I was crazy um I do remember you remember so she was flat on her and um you know they told me I was crazy and I I think I learned my lesson and something was wrong with my baby Mm -hmm. and I didn't give up I got an answer you know, we got an answer that, you know, she definitely has, um, you know, a connective tissue disorder that pieces all of this craziness together. Right. And it's not something that's well understood. And, you know, Bryn, Bryn and I have decided that it's, since it's not well understood and there's no treatment, that we're just going to table it. It, it sort of lives there on the shelf. Like we know it's there, but we don't live in it. But it was funny because you watched, you know, a very prominent, very strong-willed physician try to tell me I was crazy. And mm-hmm. I'm like, no, I've done this before. I'm not crazy. <laughs> Something's wrong with my baby. Yeah, exactly. So, and you persisted and, mm-hmm. and you I, trusted your instincts and yourself. And you have to when you're a mom. You do. You do. That's our job. <laughs> it is our job. And you have to listen to that little voice because you, you, 
you got to trust that you know your kid better than anybody. And so somebody who looks at your child for five minutes versus every day of every year, every second, just because you're not medically trained doesn't mean you don't know your child. So um, I love I love that advice about really finding that medical professional that will listen to you and trust you. And if you're in a, I feel like if you're in an emergent situation and you're surrounded by people, usually if you don't trust one person, you can find someone you do trust. Mm-hmm. And I feel like connect with that one person. You know, I don't feel like. Absolutely. I just don't want people to feel like they have to go in and then, you know, literally move locations, but just find one person you can trust and you can be real with. And usually they can help advocate for you. Absolutely. Which was my, you know, my pediatrician was, you know, definitely somebody who really, I think was my, she was my grand central station. Um, I, I think that, well, and I also think if you set the expectation of, you know, this is, I think sometimes we lose sight of the fact that children hear everything we say, uh, whether we think they're processing it or not. So if there's a tense relationship between you and the provider, they pick up on that. I mean, it would be like they would pick up on a tense relationship between you and a teacher or you and a server or any other profession. And so you're going to teach them. So my, so Bryn was never with everything that she had to go through, you know, the lab work, the tests, the, the, she always took it with beauty and grace because she knew that, that we had that person in our corner that, you know, sort of was, was helping steer our ship. Whereas I think if that was a tense relationship, I'm not so sure things would have been, it could have been worse. And, and sometimes I think mm-hmm. providers are human. And if you explain to them that you're, Right. You, know, you just need to be open. So I have a really tough question for you. <laughs> if you could sum up uh, this experience with Bryn in one word or phrase, what would it be? Uh, I would say tenacity. I think that's that's what it is. It's tenacity. You You can't. You just have to hang in. So, um, yes, there were tears. Yes, there were, I mean, there was all kind of emotions, but I think looking back, it was just, you know, that would be my one word that I would use. For you and for her. I see that. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. It was. And, you know, when, you know, it, and you get tenacity from everything, from the people, from, I mean, well, it, you just don't realize what you got in you. Michelle gave some great advice. Advice in my book that is worth writing down. One, it's okay to wear your crazy hat. Two, take time in finding your child's medical team, and if you don't click, it's okay to move along and find someone else. And three, let people help. If you would like to connect with Michelle, and she has said that she is more than willing to connect to offer advice, comfort, or support, In fact, she's already done so in the past with friends and acquaintances who have had children with encephalitis. You can do so via Facebook or her email, both of which I link to in this show notes page. Stay tuned for a quick preview of next week's episode at the end of these announcements. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Child Life On Call podcast. 
A big thank you goes to Barbara Riddle Photography for donating her time and incredible skills as a photographer to take the beautiful picture of Michelle and Bryn for this podcast. If you haven't already, go check out the picture on our Instagram account and then go follow Barbara Riddle Photography on Instagram or Facebook. Please like our Facebook page and follow us along on Twitter or Instagram. If you would like to share your story or have questions about this podcast, you can email info at childlifepodcast.com or submit your information to our website, childlifepodcast.com. He told me after, he said, you know, I have to tell women, I've seen women go into postpartum depression immediately. I've seen, you know, when you have no knowledge of that there's anything wrong and suddenly your kid is born and there's something wrong and they're not, you know, the perfect child you envisioned. He said, sometimes you know, it's too much. It's overwhelming. And just the whole, and he said, I have, it's my duty to kind of talk to you first. And I said, that's fine. I'm, you know, I wasn't upset or anything. I said, that's fine. You know, I just, I just want to hold him. You just heard a preview of next week's episode from Kim, mom, teacher, and blogger extraordinaire. She will talk about her son's surprising diagnosis shortly after birth and what their journey has been like since that day. You won't want to miss it. So check back next Monday.